My name is Tom Venizelos, and I'm a senior building inspector for the Building Inspection Division. And I'll be the moderator for this, this session, which will cover the code enforcement process. So there are different divisions within the Department of Building Inspection that uh, are involved in the code enforcement process. Building inspector Donald Duffy uh, will begin the presentation by discussing the complaint investigation procedures that may include the issuance of a notice of violation and uh, the referral of the notice of violation to uh, code enforcement. Building inspector James Lee will speak about the code enforcement process that include the director's hearing procedure and the issuance of the order of abatement. Uh, Senior Inspector Alan Davidson will speak about the code enforcement aspects of the housing inspection services. And it may become evident that there are some similarities and parallel procedures to the building inspection code enforcement process. Thanks, David. And Housing Inspector Mayling Dia will address the procedures as conducted by the lead abatement section. I am also pleased to introduce panel resources, Yvonne Murray of the City Attorney's Office, and Rebecca Loeb-Bouvet, Executive Director of the Housing Rights Commission, Janan New, Executive Director of the San Francisco Apartment Association, and Lupe Areola, CEOP Coordinator from St. Peter's Housing Committee. The panel will be available to answer questions at the conclusion of the presentation. However, we request that you make your questions brief and to the point and that you limit your questions and comments to one minute in order to accommodate others. And I'd like to uh, invite Donald Duffy to speak on his section. Hi, my name is Donald Duffy. I'm a complaint investigator with the Building Inspection Division. And my role in code enforcement is to investigate complaints, perform inspections, issue notices of violation, and in the event of non-compliance, to refer the matter to the code enforcement section for abatement proceedings. So we'll just have a brief overview of each function. The complaints. Uh, who complains? It could be a referral from another city department or agency, or it could be a member of the public. And the member of the public can remain anonymous if they so wish. Uh, the type of complaints typically handled by the Building Inspection Division would be work exceeding the scope of permit, work without permit, or an unsafe building. Once a complaint has been logged into our system, it will be assigned to an inspector. Work beyond the scope of permit is typically handled by a district building inspector. Work without permit and unsafe structures are handled by the complaint investigation team. Once we receive a complaint, we will utilize city records which are useful to investigate the complaint and we would only investigate that area of complaint. Upon completion of the investigation, a notice of violation may be issued. What is a notice of violation? A notice of violation is an official written citation to document conditions which do not comply with the San Francisco building, plumbing, mechanical, electrical, or housing codes. It shall describe the violations accurately, the remedial actions required, with a time period attached, and the penalties imposed. There's a nine times permit fee for work without permit, so it can be costly. If the owner does not comply with the notice of violation within the time period prescribed, a second notice of violation will be issued, and the case will be referred to the code enforcement section. I'll now hand you over to Alan Davidson. Good afternoon. I'm Senior Housing Inspector Alan Davison with Housing Inspection Services. I will be giving a brief overview of the Housing Inspection Services code enforcement process, which runs concurrent with other divisions. The process begins as follows. We start with the complaint. The complaint is received. It's either initiated by the public or it's a referral from another department or it's by systematic code enforcement, which we call routine inspection. The next step in the process is the actual inspection. A district inspector will investigate the alleged violations and or conduct a routine inspection of the common areas of the building. And then we move down to the notice of violation itself. 
If, a housing, if housing inspection violations are found at the time of inspection, a notice of violation will be issued describing the repair or corrective actions to be taken, as well as the reinspection time and date. Next, we move down to the reinspection. At the time of the reinspection, if all corrective items are completed, the case will then be abated. Right there. And that's a, the actual goal we're trying to reach. At this time, I would like to introduce Acting Senior Building Inspector James Lee, who will discuss the director's hearing and order abatement process. Now, the complaint uh, file comes uh, to our section uh, called co-enforcement section. The co-enforcement section employs administrative abatement process and follow the procedures and uh, tools to correct code deficiencies. And this section initiate follow-up enforcement when a case have been referred by other uh, divisions within DBI, such as electrical plumbing and building inspection, known as the EIDPID EID, and BID. By holding director's hearings and referring cases to Building Inspection Commission and City Attorney's Office for litigation. We review and prioritize complaint referrals from other divisions and prepare cases for director's hearing, which is concurrent alongside housing violation uh, cases. Now, what is a director's hearing? A director's hearing is a powerful apparatus to compel co-compliance. It involves a quasi-judicial process that includes, one, swelling in witnesses whom testify, two, audio recordings of sessions, three, presiding by a chief or a senior inspector on behalf of the director of DBI. And four, providing the city, the property owner, and interested party a fair opportunity to present their case. Prior to scheduling a director's hearing, as a major task of preparation, we conduct a title search to find out those who have the financial interest on the property, such as other business partners, the lending institutes, and notify them of the upcoming hearing. At this point, if the property owner has complied with the notice of violation and delivers a copy of the signed off job card to our division, the entire hearing proceeding can be avoided and therefore case abated. Not a penny will be charged. Most of the outcomes from the director's hearing are the issuance of an order of abatement. Now, what is an order of abatement? An order of abatement is a negative title lien, a cloud, recorded against the property. It inversely affects the property's title and business activities, such as title transferring, selling, or buying of the property, or simply have a hard time obtaining refinancing, etc. This is a powerful tool to achieve co-compliance. Once the order of abatement is issued and recorded, the property owner is also responsible to reimburse DBI with abatement assessment fees. I'll let it be known that an order of abatement is appealable. It can be appealed to abatement appeal board within 10 calendar days. The rest of the routine work at co-enforcement section are monitoring case development to either achieving abatement, then revoke the order of abatement, 
or make preparation for referring cases to Building Inspection Commission Litigation Committee for possible city attorney referral. Now, I have concluded my presentation, and Senior Inspector Davison, your turn again. Thank you, James. Okay, so where we left, Housing Inspection left off after James so wonderfully explained this, is the assessment of costs. Once the order of abatement has been issued and the 10-day appeal, appeal process has been passed, the Department will prepare and send an assessment of cost bill for the inspector and clerical time spent on the case, which is based on an hourly, hourly rate. And it's roughly a minimum of about $600. And that's just the initial bill. With an initial, there's always the final. After the assessment of costs, this bill has been sent, we have the option of sending it to the litigation subcommittee and or city, city attorney for referral. The Department of Building Inspection is overseen by the Building Inspection Commission, which has a litigation subcommittee. The litigation subcommittee reviews cases forwarded to them for possible city attorney action. This is when the process becomes costly, because we all know that attorneys are not cheap, <laughs> no matter what you have to do. So, in conclusion, this is what we're trying to obtain, abatement of all listed items in the process. So the remedy for this is this code enforcement process can be avoided by responding to notices of violation in a timely manner and by surveying residential property at least quarterly to ensure maintenance of a safe, functional, sanitary housing. So I would uh, suggest that to avoid all this, by about right here, have it done. So the next speaker is Housing Inspector Mei Ling Di, who will discuss the lead abatement section's code enforcement process in detail. My name is Mei Ling Di, Housing Inspector with the Lead Abatement Division. The Lead Abatement Division enforced the Lead Based Ping Ordinance, San Francisco Building Code Section 347. It's regarding any activity that disturb or remove lead based ping on the exterior and interior of pre-1979 building, structure, and property. The, the purpose of this ordinance is to minimize or eliminate the risk of lead contamination to the environment, also to provide a reasonable level of health and safety for the public at large, especially children and pregnant women. And here's some photo. You can see that this is a typical the pre-1979 building. Then they are preparing to do the exterior paint disturbing work. Next. And this is another photo to show that uh, they do the interior paint disturbing work without complying uh, this uh, requirement. And then. That's the other one is uh, the exterior paint disturbing work. Uh, you know, they didn't comply the requirement. Um, there was a workshop uh, conducted earlier today uh, regarding the lead paint laws and its requirements. If you didn't have a chance to attend uh, that workshop, I will be happy to answer any question regarding the uh, safety, safe work practice after uh, this, this presentation. Okay. Uh, let's talk about the co-enforcement procedure in the lead ab abatement division. Typically, the enforcement procedure in this division are very similar to what Donald and James and Allen uh, described earlier, such as conducting uh, complaint inspection, issuing notice violation, uh, scheduling a hearing, and issue notice of decision after the hearing, and so on. Because of the lead based ping uh, ordinance, the lead abatement division have an additional enforcement action to bring the complaint location into compliance with the requirement. During the complaint inspe inspection, if complaint is justified and in violation of this section, inspector can issue a notice of penalty and fee in addition to the notice of violation for the responsible party like property owner and or contractor. And here's the example. Uh, go back to the notice violation. 
Here's an example, the notice violation. Basically, if we go out to do the inspection, find the in violation, then we'll mark that what kind of violation in this notice. And the next one. And the penalty can range from $250 up to the $3,000 plus the inspection fee per day. And like for example, this is a notice penalty year day in violation, then that will mark that and calculate how much you charge per each violation per day. Then it can add up the total. If the responsible party wish to appeal the penalty and fee, and appeal of imposition of penalty form will be provided for them. And this is another form for the appeal form. Basically, homeowner or contractor, or either both of them, they can file, complete this form, submit to uh, the Land Abatement Division. And the appeal should be submitted within 15 business days uh, uh, on the day of the issue, the notice for penalty and fee. If the responsible parties choose not to file appeal, the penalty and fee shall be paid within 30 days. If not, the final order on notice of penalty and fee will be issued against the property and recorded in the recorder's office. And this is the sample for the um, um, final order. Uh, if they don't pay, then we will issue this one and then record it in the recorder office. Upon receiving an appeal, the division will schedule the case for the director's hearing. After the director's hearing, a notice of decision and order will be issued and recorded in the recorder's office. The hearing decision can be a modification of the assessed penalty or may allow the responsible parties to attend a training course approved by the State of Department of Health Service in lieu of the penalty. The training course must be lead related construction supervision and project monitoring. And this is another sample of the notice of decision after the hearing. <coughs> if the responsible party failed to pay the penalty and fee after the final order have issued, or failed to comply with the notice of decision and order, the case will be referred to the special assessment lien hearing before the Board of Supervisors. It will be a lien on the property tax bill. Also, it may be referred to the Office of the City Attorney for the further abatement process. In addition, the property owner's name may be referred to the California Franchise Tax Board and contractor's name may be referred to the California Contractor State License Board. Well, that's the co-enforcement process in the Lead Abatement Division. Thank you. I'm Yvonne Murray. I'm a Deputy City Attorney with the Code Enforcement Unit. And I guess I'm the end of the enforcement line. So when all of these individuals have enlisted property owners' cooperation and made them aware of notices of violation and director's hearings have happened in orders of abatement, and sometimes in egregious cases, even before all of those administrative steps have taken, I am the attorney and one of six or seven attorneys in the city attorney's office that is in charge of enforcing our municipal codes, our relevant state laws, and to abate issues of public nuisance. I get complaints from departments. I get complaints from the public. We operate a hotline. And what my job is is to ensure that in the city and county of San Francisco, our municipal codes are adhered to and the law is followed. So... I think you've heard wonderful presentations from our department today and earlier this morning for those of you who are at the landlord-tenant panel. I cannot echo enough that cooperating and working with the city to address problems as quickly as possible is really effective. What you have not heard yet is that there are enormous civil penalties that are attached with violations of our municipal codes. Violations of the housing code are $1,000 a day. Violations of the building, plumbing, and electrical code are $500 a day. Anything that is unlawful can also be considered an unlawful business practice that carries a penalty of $2,500 per violation. I say that not to scare you, but I say it because this is why we try to enlist your cooperation to address things quickly, to ensure that our housing and our properties are safe and healthy for the residents of San Francisco. So if you see me, unfortunately, it's not usually good news. So I encourage you not to see me um, and work with these wonderful people at DBI.
I am Rebecca Logbove. I'm the executive director of the Housing Rights Committee of San Francisco. And what I do is I try to work before we get to this position, before the city is called in at all. We are a tenants' rights organization, and we have lots of people who come to us for assistance. And one of the premier areas is with repairs. So what we do in the Code Enforcement Outreach Program is we work directly with tenants to try to work with the landlord to get the repairs done to keep it out of the city's process. It saves the city money. It does a lot to build relationships between tenants and landlords. And it does a lot to build relationships between groups like myself and the Apartment Association, other landlord groups who are participating in this program. So there's a lot of bonuses in participating in this program. We've learned a lot about the city's process. We've saved the city tremendous amounts of money. I'd say my organization alone keeps 20 to 35 cases out of the DBI system per month. And, and that's a lot. That's a lot of time and effort that isn't wasted. And our time and effort is spent on resolving the problems. Sometimes it's just an issue of the landlord and the tenant speak a different language than each other. Sometimes it's an absentee landlord who doesn't know what their property management is doing on the ground. And as I said, it also gives us an opportunity to work with other city organizations, other nonprofits, and with the Apartment Association, which has done a lot to educate both of us about our roles in the struggle to provide safe and decent housing. Whether you're a tenant or a landlord, we're assuming that our goals are the same, to make better housing more livable. Thank you. My name is Janan New. I'm the director of the San Francisco Apartment Association. I'm Rebecca's counterpart on the side of the rental housing provider, the owner. And um, we have resolved quite a few issues. We keep about 30 cases a month going. And some of these cases are resolved with one or two phone calls. They're immediately resolved. Um, some go on over a period of a year or so, you know, unfortunately. Uh, but the sooner you can uh, act, the better it will be for the owner and a lot uh, less costly. One thing I did want to mention in one of our mandates um, as a nonprofit in San Francisco is we uh, do education and provide education to rental housing providers. And I think an important thing for everyone to realize is all of the problems caused are multi-level. And although they may affect the building and the repair and maintenance of the building, as Rebecca mentioned, a lot of times there could be rent board issues or language barriers or all sorts of different issues, people not understanding the responsibilities of owners. And what we like to do is offer ongoing education courses, not only in the area of lead and mold, but just, you know, basic business responsibilities if you own and provide rental housing in San Francisco. Um, so that's it, and I'll be around uh, to the end to answer any questions that you may have. And I'd like to thank um, Amy Lee and her staff at DBI for having us here today. We've all found it, and so is my uh, staff to be a very uh, fruitful day, and we've all really enjoyed ourselves. So thank you very much, and thank you, Rosemary. So my name is Lupe Arreola. I'm with St. Peter's Housing Committee in San Francisco. We're a tenant rights organization that serves primarily Spanish-speaking tenants in the Mission District and in the rest of San Francisco as well. Um, we've been around for about 20 years, and like Housing Rights Committee, we provide tenant counseling and tenant advocacy for tenants in San Francisco. Um, and basically, our goal as part of the CIA program is, again, to also try to keep as many cases out of DBI as possible and to really work with the tenant and the landlord to get the problems resolved um, without having to go through the lengthy process of, you know, going through hearings and everything. Um, we help tenants write letters. Sometimes it is a language issue if tenants speak Spanish and the landlord will speak a language other than Spanish. Um, so we help the tenants write, you know, letters in English to the landlords about the repair problems, um, giving them some options in terms of, you know, you can repair it now, or we we do have the option of taking it to the apartment association, right? So they they can, they can then call the landlord. Um, and this program really gives us a really 
really unique opportunity to actually work with an organization that works with landlords in order to get these problems resolved, which is something that I think is not being done in many cities and is something that I think is very great about San Francisco that that's something we can actually do. Um, we also help tenants. Um, in the case of we refer cases to DBI, um, working with the inspectors, make sure they have access. Um, and again, like everybody said, our goal is ultimately for the tenants to have a, a healthy, you know, dignified place to live. Um, within repairs that they need, um, whether it be just communicating with the landlord or working with DBI or with a problem association. Um, but, and most of the things that we, that we see that are the most common problems are, you know, like the, especially during winter time, we get a lot of calls around leaks and moisture. Um, and so basically we, we try to work with the landlords to make sure those things are happening. And usually people are pretty responsive. And so that's kind of what we like to see, like to see a communication happen and then, you know, get a, a resolution, you know. So, um, so I think DBI for putting this together and getting all these folks together. So I'll be around to have people have any questions as well. Thanks, Lupe. Uh, well, that concludes our formal presentation. We're ready to entertain uh, questions and answers. We have a microphone set up in the room. What do you do about a building owner who has illegally converted a strictly commercial building for residential use and continues to refuse to allow entry by the Department of Building Inspection to make the inspection and determine, yes, people are actually living there. They know to believe me, but what can the, because uh, I'm sure there are other people who have the same concern, what can the city attorney's office do? For any, and it doesn't matter what the circumstances are, for anything that the city has a right to inspect, there is, for anyone who's interested, Code of Civil Procedure 1822.5 um, for your numbers, people. And what that says is it allows me to go into court to get a warrant. Now, it's not a warrant like you think of in a criminal context. It's basically a court order that allows the department then to do an inspection. Now, the first warrant that we're allowed to by law cannot be done by force. So we must serve it on the property owner. We must wait. If the property owner does not give us consent, then we are entitled under law under the same code section to go back into court and ask to enter the property by force. Now, again, we are somewhat loath to do that because, as you've, I think, gleaned, we want to come at these issues in a spirit of collaboration. So to answer your question, that is the technical way that we can get access to a property. Um, in my almost three years, we have yet to do it. I have a question about illegal in-law apartments. Are you enforcing any laws about that? Every time I hear, call them up, people say, oh, well, you know, it's something we can't get to if the owner doesn't want to let us in, and so these just go on. So what is the position about Enforcement Illegal units is a challenge for us in San Francisco. Um, it's also a general policy decision from the Board of Supervisors and the Mayor because it unfortunately does serve as a vital component of uh, affordable housing. Um, but for us, uh, in our role at the Department of Building Inspections, when we are made aware of the situation, most, most of the time it's through complaint um, or, in fact, if the district inspector happens to see something while he's inspecting another property nearby, we do attempt to make um, entry and to conduct an inspections. And most often we, you know, go through the violation process and the abatement process. And But what happens to us is after we're done and we believe it to be abated and the property owner may have removed the kitchen to make it um, in compliance, after we're gone, the kitchen may return. And so that's one of our challenges that we have at the department, and we have to work through that as well. But it's kind of a difficult issue to address, but we are trying to address that. Thank you. That's exactly why I asked the question, because I know that that is a source of affordable housing, and I recognize the need. But there is this code enforcement meeting right here, and I'm curious to know that you're between a rock and a hard place, it sounds like. Issue for us is the safety yes. in the in that unit because, as we know, you know, for example, a lot of the electrical work is done without permit and may, you know, give rise to um, some serious safety issues there. So our concern is most importantly, you know, um, the safety of that unit and the habitability of that unit. But it is a challenge, and we do attempt to, you know, in many cases, I believe, I think Donald can probably echo, we've gone to the property over three times, had them take the kitchen out three times, and you know. It happens again, but, you know, it's not, even though we are in a difficult situation, we do try to address it when we're made aware of it. 
One last question, that you have a, a wonderful selection of materials uh, advising people on what the codes are, and there's even a list of frequently asked questions and things that you need to know if you're going to try and legalize something in the basement. And one of those items was that you have to uh, comply with some uh, electrical uh, code uh, activities for uh, a storage room. I'm only bringing this up to ask, are you actually enforcing those electrical um, activities? Because when I checked with someone, they said they didn't have enough personnel to go out because there are so many storage rooms in San Francisco, so it's just being, you know, winked at. Um, I'm bringing to your attention an issue, which is, are all the codes, you know, enforced or are they selectively enforced? As many as we can, possibly. You know, we are, Sorry about that. We are a little bit limited in resources. I'll just add to that um, answer. Um, it, it's not a wink-wink, and we're not into selective enforcement at all. Um, the issue is, is it brought to our attention? And that's, in, if it's not, we don't know about it. You know, San Francisco, as small as it is, has a lot of bil buildings, um, and we have a limited number of inspectors. So certainly, if we're made aware of those situations, we do enforce it. If we see the situation as we're doing another part of uh, an inspection in that in that particular location, you know, if we're doing a garage or some, you know, some sort of renovation or seismic retrofit in the basement, and we see the storage rooms and bath, certainly we'll bring that. Um, and in fact, uh, I, I have to say. That the electrical division is probably the most stringent of all of our department divisions and is least vulnerable to interpretation. My name is Wallace Ullman. I'm a tenant attorney, as I mentioned this morning. I mentioned that just so you'll know my perspective as I ask you this question. And it's about the Franchise Tax Board and referrals to it in your enforcement process. My impression is that there are far fewer referrals to the Franchise Tax Board now than 10 or 20 years ago. Uh, my impression was that in the past that referral occurred right after, right maybe simultaneous with the issuance of an order of abatement at the director's hearing. I don't, my impression is that doesn't automatically happen now. Um, and my question is, what is the referral procedure that you're using? And if you're not referring so much, why is that? Because my belief is that when the tax deductions are disallowed for landlords, that that money uh, is uh, referred back to the city of San Francisco. Uh, you're correct in that last statement. Um, I don't work directly with code enforcement. James, did you want to comment on that? Rosemary. Oh, Rosemary. Good afternoon again. Rosemary Bosque, Chief Housing Inspector of the Housing Division. We do FTB referrals, State Franchise Tax Board referrals. And uh, ten years ago, I don't, the law hasn't been in, it's been in existence quite a while. We do them, but we do other things as well. Um, the FTB referral, as far as getting that money back, it does take time because the state has to go through and audit those books. So while that process is going on, we now do additional things um, to get the property owner to comply, such as when that order is issued, which is the time frame you were talking about, when it is issued, we will assess the property owner the cost to reimburse the city for the time it's taken to get them to comply once an order is issued pursuant to Chapter 1 of the Building Code. And we put a lot of effort into that now, more effort than we used to 10 or 20 years ago, because the codes were updated to allow us to do that. That also then helps fund the efforts as far as doing systematic enforcement to do things such as on a systematic basis, go into apartment buildings, look in the basement to see if they have storage, to see if they have the required sprinklering, depending upon the size of the building. So we do FTB, um, but we do it with a whole lot of other things. Should we do more of it? Well, if I had more resources, yes, we probably would do even more than we do. But we're also putting those resources into the effort of doing assessment of costs, which gives us the benefit of getting that reimbursement much more quickly while we're waiting for the state to react to doing an audit of someone's books. And what happens when a property owner doesn't pay is on a yearly basis we go before the Board of Supervisors and ask that a special assessment lien be put on their tax bill. And the Board of Supervisors has been very supportive of that. So we have several different tools that we use. You've mentioned FTB. 
we haven't even talked about citations, we do those as well. So we use every tool that we possibly can given the resources we have, but we do find that the assessment of costs, since it's much more direct and automatic, that that has been a more effective, efficient, and more timely tool for us. Thank you. Thank you. I, I also, as I recall, the uh, Revenue and Tax Code says that there has to be a, a like a six-month wait to give the owner a chance. That's right. See, time but does have to go on, whereas we have to get the, and that's a very good point, the case has to be ripe, meaning that a lot of time has to go on before we can actually send a notice of noncompliance, which is the term, than the actual document to the state. The other issue that we've had in the past is, Procedurally, sometimes they've wanted a social security number. We've gotten some of those issues resolved, but it doesn't mean that we can automatically, when that order is issued, send it to FTB. But we can send a, le a letter to them saying that we're assessing them the cost uh, on an hourly rate of what it has been from day one to get them to comply once an order is issued. And we find that that's very effective and, and very f uh, timely, and we do, get their, we do get a response from them because not only are they then having to pay that, but they realize that we bill twice, once while the items are outstanding, and then once again when the case is closed. So it is an incentive for them to go ahead and make sure that they complete all the required work, get all the permits, and get them signed off. I'm very glad to hear that it's a both-and situation. You're simultaneously doing the referral to the Franchise Tax Board and using those other techniques. My Memory of uh, slumlords would jump like cats on hot tin roofs when they got that FTB notice. I'm Steve Currier, and I represent the Automisha Residents Association, and I just want to tell you that DBI and the city attorney's office are our best friends, especially when it comes to code enforcement. But, Inspector Lee, you said something that I was a little puzzled about when you were going through the complaint, filing the complaint, and, and making a complaint, and then filing the complaint or, or sending the complaint off to the building owner and then inspecting and then abate. And what you said, if the issue is abated or the problem is abated, there's not a, a, a penny charged. And can you explain that? Because when, when people ask me about it, I would expect that if somebody makes a complaint because there's some code enforcement issues or some illegal uh, electrical work going on or something, there would be a, a charge somewhere along the line. So I, I would like for you to clarify that, please. Oh, thank you. That's a wonderful question. Um, when I earlier mentioned there's not a penny charge, it's not that if we, prior to the uh, director hearing, then if the, question, uh, if the uh, violation being abated, then we do not charge them the um, co-enforcement assessment. As a matter of fact, I, I found that it's very um, encouraging um, um, a message that we send out to the owners that do it before, you, you know, you being penalized uh, uh, later on. However... But there, there is a penalty on the permit. Exactly. That part that was get right, right. It's no. A, it's a uh, two different fee. Yeah, there's an intense penalty based on the permit fee for the amount of work done. So that, that, that is the penalty. So there is a penalty. Yeah. But yeah. once the order of abatement uh, issued and recorded, and that's the fee uh, kicking in, and it's not cheap. And um, I think uh, our last lien cycle that we uh, end up collecting in the tens of thousands of dollars. Could you explain what is an as-built permit? And does that have any penalties? It, it implies to me that somebody did something different than the original permit, and this is to sort of backfill the, the process. And could you clarify if I'm correct in that assumption or if there's anything that's a negative about having an as-built permit? Why didn't they get all this straightened out beforehand? An as-built would be, uh, say, for instance, a person were doing an addition on their house or some large scope of work, and the actual work didn't go precisely according to the approved plans, then what the district inspector would do is write a correction notice, or if it's egregious, write a notice of violation and ask that per the uh, project sponsor, the owner, to file an as-built or, you know, as it was built. 
So, for instance, if they built maybe a little higher, you know, a little taller than their plans allowed them to, then we'd refer that back to city planning and have to go back through the regular neighborhood notification process and get an approval uh, from city planning before um, any of the structural issues that may have been uh, altered in order to, uh, you know, exceed the scope of that, uh, the original permit. So, you know, there's a little process there. Is there anything wrong with doing an as-built? Yeah, because we ask you to, as project sponsors, to stay within the scope of your permit. And if you think that you're going to exceed the scope of your permit, file the revision before we ask for that. Is there a penalty then? Uh, there could be if the there could be a two times penalty on the uh, valued amount if the scope of the original permit were exceeded. Could do you be. apply that? Yeah, we do. Sure. And and what if the neighborhood didn't want the building taller? Uh, is there the capability of having the um, excess uh, height reduced? Uh, that's a possibility. Yeah, it becomes a negotiation at that point. But, uh, it, I mean, this sounds like an end run around the whole process. Well, yeah, that's true. The, the neighbors can appeal any any kind of permit that even you know a an as built or a revision can be appealed by the neighbors. So it, it could be appealed before city planning even approves that. So uh, it conceivably the the person could have to lower their building height if that. You know, we're the final decision made by city planning and all the appeal processes on the on the project sponsors and we're exhausted. Is this a, a common event, this as-built permit, or is that an unlikely thing that happens from your experience? It, it certainly happens. Uh, I don't think it's, it's not the rule that it does happen. And sometimes it's minor in nature. I mean, maybe a, a window was put in where, you know, the, the project sponsor decided, gee, I'd like to have a window here. So they, they put a window in, and then, uh, you know, we, we write them up for exceeding the scope and uh, notice them for two times uh, whatever amount. You know, that that's just one example of what it costs to put the window in and send them back through the planning and uh, building process, uh, planning and building plan approval process. Thank you. Sure. Thank you. Getting back with that um, revision, when you get a permit for that and the cost of that revision is less than what the original assessed cost, basically you're just adding to the original assessed cost, and they give you a new permit for that, which is a shorter time than what your original. Say um, you got a original permit that expires in December of this year. And somewhere like middle of this year, you ask for a revision, and they only give you until October of this year, until the end of October. Would you still have to apply for an extension until the end of the year so that way you can get everything tied up, you know, like when, with the finishing and everything? Well, there are two ways to look at that. The, the, the life of a permit is dependent on the valuation. So uh, if, if the scope of the... Uh, work that is being uh, revised or added to the project is such that it gives you, uh, I think at $5,001, the, the permit's uh, good for six months. Mm -hmm. So it's really dependent on the valuation. So for $5,000, $1 to $5,000, the permit's a four-month permit. And it goes, it goes up uh, you know, um, consistent with the valuation increase. So you're better off just kind of adding just the like well, we ask, Yeah, we asked you to put the, <laughs> so the actual that. value of the, the proposed work on the, on the permit application. Okay. Um, so do you still, like, I guess I'm, it wasn't very clear. Well, as far as the second permit goes, um, since it expired at an earlier date than the first permit, um, would you have to like complete just that part that you revised? But if or is it not? <laughs> some, sometimes that doesn't work out, and sometimes what happens is we get to the end of the job and we see some permits that have expired, and, and we'll do a renewal on those permits for the purposes of final inspection only. Okay. So that's that's certainly another way to approach it. I see. Okay. Thank you. 
I have two questions. There are a lot of homeowners that are new homeowners that buy buildings and there's illegal units in it and they didn't do any of that. They inherited those problems. And before they even have a chance to get settled into their new place, a neighbor calls the building department and says, hey, there's an illegal unit. And all of a sudden there's a citation. So are those new owners that barely have been in their buildings for a couple months now paying penalties when they pull permits to take those units away? Uh, initially, when the illegal unit is written up by the complaint investigation inspector, the, the penalties are imposed. And how much are those penalties? Well, it's nine times the value of the work that they... Are those they negotiable? Do people ever, or do they ever, I mean, it's really, it's unfortunate for some. It's one thing if, if you're the party who did it. It's another thing if you're a homeowner that went in and didn't have a chance to maybe step forward to the building department and say, hey, I want to take that out. You barely had a chance to do that, and somebody beat you to the punch on that. So how right. does that work? Well, there, there are certainly avenues to, to address that, and uh, Maybe, uh, maybe the, the new owner would take that notice of violation back to the realtor and say, hey, this wasn't disclosed. And maybe they can get some relief on that end, you know, for the collection of penalties. A lot of the complaints come through from open homes. Somebody will walk through a home on a Saturday or Sunday yeah. and call us on Monday. Okay. Then I have one other question. You have a neighbor who is just a, a nuisance neighbor. I'm just giving you, I like little examples of things. And um, you're having a room painted and you're abiding by everything. And uh, a building inspector gets that notice. And they have a little form that there's an anonymous complaint. So when they, what is their procedure in investigating that? Do they, you know, if the door's open, do they just walk right in and see what's going on? Or do they send a letter to the owner about it? I mean, what are the steps? Well, <laughs> What's the wording of the complaint? Work without permit? Uh, right. Say work without permit. Correct. There so you go. I get the Perfect. complaint, I go out, and the door's open. Okay. I'll knock on the door or ring the doorbell. Okay. And identify myself. Okay. And show, show the complaint and say, may I investigate this? And okay. nine times out of ten, please come on in. I'm doing nothing illegal. I go in. That's it. So I'm understanding that you need to be given permission to enter the premises. Sure. Yes. Yeah, I just Absolutely. wanted to, I didn't yes. know what be the protocol was on that. <laughs> yes. If I wasn't sure if you went and kicked the door in and said, hey, we're here, here's my badge, no, I no, can come I, in. No, 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 I, I, no. I show my badge and my badge says that, uh, what does it say? <laughs> in, in, Inspector Donald, uh, yeah, yeah, okay. No, but I'm not kicking any doors in, no, no. Okay. I haven't. Um, normally, we do, we, do a, we do have the authority ultimately to get a, yes. wa a warrant to enter a property. But for the most part, absent life safety issues, serious life safety issues, we don't normally exercise that through the city attorney's office, although that tool is available to us, and we go through the procedures that Donald mentioned. I, I'm doing complaints three years, and we've, I've had one warrant. That was it. But the, but the complaint, it's, it stays on... On, on record until it is abated by nothing, nothing illegal happened or a notice of violations issued. So the complaint will stay on the computer. Mm. It has to be closed out, yes, yes. You know, the only other thing I'll add is that we, when we do larger scale inspections, and this morning we talked a lot about that, about routine inspections, we will actually send notices to individual tenants. And if we do not have the authority to enter, we won't enter. So we do, just as um, Amy Lee mentioned, we are not in the business of kicking down doors. That is an exceeding our police power, and we do not do it. Um, and we are on the side of caution. So again, I've only done one warrant in three years. Most of the time we get authorization because it's better that we inspect it early, we catch the problem, we inform the property owner, and we can try to collaborate to a result. I was just wondering if there is a specific section of the building code that deals with illegal residential conversions from commercial to residential or from garages to residential, and if so, if any of you um, know what that is. It's well, that would probably fall under work without a permit, okay. section 106. Our, our change of use is 3402. Okay. Or 109 point, it's in 109 and it's 3402.
Okay, it's change of use. And change of use. Okay. Yes. And my name is Rick Bowles, and I'm a realtor here in San Francisco. And just to speak from the real estate um, agent and broker standpoint, there's what's called a 3R report that I'm sure we're all familiar with that we are required to provide to the uh, to the buyers. So I think what she was actually talking about was more so directed towards th there's a lot of people that do buy um, real estate that has a possible you know violation to it for non-permitted work or um, an illegal unit. And in such cases, when they do that, um, she's concerned with getting penalized with you know getting the repair work done because that, that does create an issue for if somebody is going to buy a property to correct you know damages that are in the property you're already aware that there's there's problems with it um, but then you know as the other gentleman was saying earlier uh, somebody goes to an open house and turns them in uh, while they're going through the escrow process. There, there's this kind of, um, you know, collision of two worlds that happens, and to have some understanding of that, okay, this was going through escrow, it's now closed escrow. There's a little bit of a um, uh, grace period involved for somebody to turn the project in and say we're going to do, be doing these types of repairs. I think that's kind of where she's trying to go with this. And any comments on that? Well, uh, if, if a complaint comes in to me, I'll do the investigation on the complaint. And if I do research on a property and I've seen it and it's a single family home and I go out and there's two units, well, I'll have to call it two units. So it'll be an illegal unit. And notice a violation to do, remove the legal unit or, you know, remove or legalize. So there would be a violation. The situation has happened where. You know, there, there was, I think it was an illegal deck or something like that, that uh, during escrow it was disclosed in the, es or during the open house it was disclosed that there was a non-permitted deck or something like that. And somebody turned that uh, seller in because they didn't get the offer on the property. Well, now, you know, escrow goes through escrow, escrow closes, new owner, you know, takes, takes possession of the property. All of a sudden, bam, they're, they're slammed with a, a violation and then also um, penalties on top of that. And I think that's the, the, the quandary uh, and the conundrum in this is that if somebody is closing escrow before they even have a chance to, you know, take care of a problem, they could be hit with a penalty. Is there a consideration for, okay, we realize escrow is just closed on this property. Somebody turned in the property during escrow. You know, is there a grace period to waive the penalties so this person can you know, complete their work? Well, it goes back to partly disclosure laws. So you know, we would hope that the seller would be disclosing that this – this, uh, right, it is. It is disclosed. Okay, it's disclosed. It is. It, there's no issue about disclosure between the the buyer and the seller. The yeah. the issue is that during escrow, um, a complaint is made. In that process during escrow, the the complaint is now written up. A violation is now submitted on the new owner who hasn't even had an opportunity once they've bought the property to uh, respond to the DBI and and get a permit. We see this a lot, actually, <laughs> um, especially in the age of disclosure and open houses. Uh, mm -hmm. Your world is kind of open display oh, so yeah. that everybody can see the problems that you have. And um, what we look for really is cooperation. Is the new owner, the person who's now been noticed, willing to step up to the plate and take the steps to, uh, to correct this violation? When the new owner does come to us and they explain the situation that they uh, just inherited this problem, that they're trying to pull together the design team, that they're ready to take care of the problem, we cooperate with them. Uh, every day at the third floor counter, Tom Venezuelas and his coworkers meet with people in circumstances just like this, and we revisit the penalty issue based upon the facts of the case once it's been brought to our attention that we're not actually responsible for that. There is consideration for that. I want to echo our deputy director's comment. Uh, really, you know, when you receive anything from DBI, please respond. 
and uh, talk to us, there's a fo- always put down phone number. Yep. You can avoid a lot of trouble by talking to us. Call us up. And you, I guarantee you, even after this, I have to go back to my office and clear all my, my um, um, what do you call it, voicemail. Or if not, then tomorrow morning at the latest. And by doing that, you avoid a lot of trouble, uh, you know, along the line. Because a lot of people, for example, the, the case that you just, you know, the scenario you just gave it to, uh, to me. And if, if I receive a phone call after the file transfers me and you tell me that I just... Um, get that property or just close escrow or whatever, tell you we have a nice um, um, facility which is called Internet. We can go on the Internet and we find if you are a, a you know, a new, new owner or whatever, I give you all the time you need. And I will make notes on the, the case lock and we cooperate with you. You work with us. The penalty part, I, I, I tell you, I, I work in different um, municipalities, the other cities, and uh, San Francisco is the most reasonable and nice uh, place and, and reasonable uh, working with all uh, DBI staff. You know, we're not here to, to get you. Uh, we just want to make sure that, that the building is safe. That's all our concern. I just bought a building, and I think what happened with that gentleman that he went by three or four times, and he had a hard time. That happened to me, too. I mean, I'm glad you guys made this. It was a great thing you guys did. And I think now with, uh, if you have, like, a car for, I forgot your name, the one at the corner, that she will help us because I couldn't fi- find an architect or I couldn't find somebody that could help us, and they give us a certain amount of time. And sometimes if you're working eight hours and you do this and you give it 30 days and this, you don't have the time. So if they have like a business card that somebody can help us like her at those times, that would be great because then we could call her and, you know, help us or something, somebody that does have the time or something. That's and if I do give 30 days, there's always considerations for just what you said, you know. Yeah, but I don't understand. To me, 30 days is 30 days, and then I get uh, all nervous, and I, you know, this and that. My but phone number's at the bottom of the rules of violation, and you can just give me a call. Okay, thank you. And actually, we have this brochure here, what, what you should know about the department code enforcement process that's on the side table. It has a lot of useful phone numbers on, in here, and we're happy to work with you if, if we see that you're trying to make progress in abating the matter. Okay, I think we've uh, exhausted our time for this room today. I'd like to thank you all for coming.